Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 is a continuation of Luke chapter 13 and the first part of 14. We shall be looking starting in verse 25. The first part of 14, Jesus is in a home of a ruler of the Pharisees and as a ruler of the Pharisees, these people knew their Old Testament, knew their Bible And they were trying to trick Jesus, and the tricking began when they brought in a person with a water retention disease, and it was on a Sabbath, and they just wanted to see, are you going to do anything? And Jesus healed the person on the Sabbath, and then gives them them a teaching about, do you do good or evil on the Sabbath? Do you help people or hurt people on a Sabbath? And he talks about uh, a seating chart, and he talks about uh, a wedding feast and a great banquet, and he's trying to tell these people through parables that they just don't get it. And then he leaves the house in verse 24. It does not say that. There is a space between verses 24 and 25. He leaves the house, and great crowds are following him. We do not know if this was the next day or the next afternoon, or what time it is, but Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem, he is heading toward the cross, and large, great crowds, it says, now great crowds accompanied him, and then Jesus turns to the crowd and gives them a teaching, and the teaching he gives them is classically known as hard sayings. There are books that you can get that are entitled The Hard Sayings of the Bible, and this is one of them that is in there called The Hard Saying. And if you are a modern marketing guy, if you are a person who wants to increase your customer base, if you want someone who wants to really entice people to come to your organization or to buy your product, You don't give them hard sayings. You give them, you tickle their ears. You want to tell them things that they want to hear. And so people look at this and our belief is that Jesus does not want easy believers. He does not want easy believe-ism. You have the parable early in uh, the Gospel of Luke and in John of the soils, of the four soils, and you have the rocky soil, which looks like a believer initially, but then when persecution and trials come, they fall away. You have the uh, weedy soil that accepts with joy, and these people, if that person's obviously a Christian, they're involved in the church, but when the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of the world come to them, they fall away. And so Jesus, knowing the hearts of people, sees this crowd, and he knows that in there is some rocky soil and some weedy soil, but also some good soil. And so he gives the hard sayings to cause them to self-examine and to thin the crowds eventually. Remember that Jesus focused 
all of his teaching on 12 and his really heavy teaching on 3. And so when you have thousands following him, Jesus doesn't go, oh, goody, goody, I have lots of followers. He wants to trim that number down to people that are truly believers that he can give tasks to and hard sayings to. And that is what is going on here. And the hard saying is simply put, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to hate your father and mothers. You've got to hate your wives and children. You've got to hate your brothers and sisters. You've got to hate everybody you're related to. And we look at that and we go, ah, well, that's no, okay, let's see what it says over here. Let's see, uh, oh, let's look at this. Because we don't want to try to figure out what he's saying because it's hard. It is a hard saying. And so several people that I've read and that I've listened to will kind of skip over it as a cultural thing. Other people will dive into it and kind of soften it for modern Christianity because we are told in the Bible to love one another. We are told in the Bible and in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. We are told to honor those who are close to us we are told to pray for our enemies. We're not told to hate anywhere else in the Bible but here. And so what is Jesus saying? Jesus is talking mostly about the... So when God says in Malachi 1, for example, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And then he talks about the blessings that Jacob has... And he talks about the sin of Esau, Esau or Edom and how ruin is going to come to Edom or Esau. And you have to compare those two that if God did not have a great unconditional love for Jacob, what he's doing over here in Edom wouldn't look like hate. It would just look like a natural occurrence because volcanoes are happening and armies are coming in. Only because the cover is removed in Malachi do we see God say, I have the love over here and the hate over here. And they only have meaning based on the strength of each one. So keep that in mind as we say... If you follow God, if you follow God, you are supposed to love Him. You are supposed to love Him more than anything else in the world. You are to have full and abiding love. The commandment that covers the whole Bible is love God with your whole being. We are commanded to love God that strongly. And if I am in ancient Israel... If I'm in modern Iran, if I'm in ancient Israel and I become a Christian and I am told by my parents that I've got to go to uh, Yom Kippur, I've got to get my sins atoned for by the sacrificing of a lamb. And I say, but I don't have to do that because Jesus Christ died for my sins. My sins are atoned for by Jesus Christ. I don't have to do this ritual anymore. Your parents are going to say, 
You hate me. You hate us. You hate what we're doing. You hate Judaism because their reaction will always be, you are, you joined a cult. That's what ancient Jews thought when Christians came on the scene. You joined a cult and you hate us. And so what Jesus is saying, when your love for God changes your behavior, all those that you were close to are going to say, you hate them. You hate their rituals. You hate what they're doing. If you become a Christian in modern Iran, if you become a Christian in Indonesia or Saudi Arabia, it is a capital offense. They will kill you. The government will kill you if you become a Christian. And so people hide it. People run away into the desert. People do whatever they can to preserve their life because they're a believer in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, if you can't be a Christian, how do they get saved? Well, God can save anybody and does. Anywhere and everywhere, people are being saved in the most unusual places, in the places where Bibles don't exist. People are being saved, and as people leave and run away from Islam, their families, their towns, their leaders say that you have become crazy. You obviously hate us and you hate God, is what they say as they run away from that to follow Jesus Christ. And so it is a cultural idea when people become a Christian. In America, you can become a Christian and people say, well, that's nice for you. And then you stop being a Christian and they say, well, that's nice for you. And people go in and out of Christianity and in and out of church attendance and nobody seems to, today, give it any mind. It is just, you know, something that you do. It is something that, a philosophy that is a good crutch for you. I've heard Christianity called a crutch. Uh, these sorts of things, if you need it, if you're a weak person, you may need Christianity. And for the most part, if a, if a kid becomes, you know, a teenager becomes a Christian, the parents are pretty okay with it. You know, you, you found friends and you're doing things, at least you're not doing drugs, they would say. And so we don't have this love-hate relationship with Christians and a state religion. In Iran, in Indonesia, in Saudi Arabia, you have a state religion. And so you're going against the state when you become a Christian. We don't have that in America. We have, in theory, freedom of religion, and we can do whatever we want. And people, for the most part, are mellow, and they try to, you know, modify behavior of Christianity to fit with the cultural norm. And so this is something that was very understood by Jesus talking. He was talking about breaking up families. And people understood that if they changed from the state religion of Judaism, which was the state religion of Israel at that time, that they would be seen as going against the state. They would be seen as crazy or radicals. Uh, when I went to Singapore to work 
uh, with Western Digital many years ago, and I met with Christian leaders that were there, and I said, what's your biggest challenge with the people here, the Asian population of Singapore? And they said, the free thinkers, because they didn't like that people made up their own mind. They would rather have people, if their parents were Christian, they would also be Christian and follow in the generational stance. And so back in Jesus' day, I'm sure if you had somebody who went off for Jesus Christ, they would be called a free thinker, and that would be bad. You needed to follow the party line. And then Jesus comes to something which hits us, and that is... Uh, at the end of 26, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be a disciple. So now you're not talking about going against your family. You're talking about going against you. And Jesus is saying, unless you hate your own life, and what that means in this context is before Christ, you are a selfish, self-serving um, Loving sin, all of your choices were sinful choices. All you could do was be sinful and think sinful before Christ. And when you become a Christian, you God does not, for the most part, I've heard of some people this happening, but for the most part, when people become a Christian, they kind of ease into it. And all of their plans and dreams and desires... And behaviors stay. I've heard of some people who say, well, they're radically changed and they, you know, have no desire for their past sinful life. And that's great. We can pray for that. But a lot, everybody that I know uh, mostly uh, eases into it and they, their behavior change becomes slow over time. And what Jesus is saying is you look at yourself, everything that says me, as I've talked about before, the idea that there's a throne in your heart and you got to sit, sit on it or put Jesus on it. And when we're sitting on it, we need to hate that. We need to hate when we're in charge. We need to hate when we're in control. We need to hate when our desires overcome. We read the Bible and we say, well, that, that's, that Jesus said that, but I don't like it because it's uncomfortable. I'm going to do whatever I want. That is the behavior that we are supposed to hate. We are supposed to hate our old self. We are supposed to hate the unrepentant self. We are supposed to hate the unsanctified self. And that is shown by, in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A lot of people say all sorts of things about what a cross is. Some people say... Yes, my in-laws are my cross, okay? Or I have a limp, and that's my cross. Cross had one purpose in the, in the Gospels, one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to publicly humiliate you, cause pain, and kill you, okay? It wasn't just a bad day for Jesus on the cross, it was horrible and devastating because of the cross. And Jesus is saying we have to put everything on the line to follow him so that if we have a cross in our future, we have to say, praise God. We sing songs like, 
when the darkness come, I'll still praise you. Well, the cross, the darkness may be a cross. And so then Jesus does a parable. He says, this is what it's like. Somebody goes and they want to build a tower. So they go to the county offices and they get the permit. And they go and they buy the land. And they clear the land. And they start laying a foundation. And they connect it up to electricity. And they connect it up to the sewer system. And they get about six feet worth of stone. And then they run out of money. And Jesus is saying, not good. Because back in those days, an honor-based society like Israel had, you would be the laughingstock. Everybody would laugh at you. They would put up billboards to say how funny you are for wasting the land, for wasting the resources because you didn't do it, you didn't finish. Uh, many years ago, when Janelle and I lived in San Jose, they cleared some land right off the freeway, and then they built, they poured concrete, and they were clearly building a parking garage, and then one year went by, and two years went by, and three years got by, and I remember this parable. I said, what are they doing? I mean, they, they finished the parking garage, but there's no place for people to live when they park in that, and it was years later years they went and they finished the apartments and now they're nice luxury apartments near the freeway and it's the idea of doing a public expression of your belief and then nothing coming from it or you fall away and I have known people I've known of people who come and are saved from from horrendous lives and God sanctifies them and makes them whole and they make great professions for Christ and then three or four years later they just disappear. Something happens in their life and their Christianity falls apart and they just disappear and so this building of the tower is a choice. This person chose to build a tower we make choices in the Christian life that if we do not stand behind and they do not last, people will spiritually not trust you. There are people that are nice people, but you don't trust them spiritually for anything they say because they've not finished anything for God that they said they was going to do. The second parable is about a war. You're a king... And this is something that happens to you. So you have something that you choose to do and then something that happens to you, but you've got 10,000 troops and you think, fantastic, I can stand against anything. I've got 10,000 troops. And then King Larry over there comes against you and he's got 20,000 troops. And you say, uh-oh, can I win? And you get your counselors together and they say, ah, but we've got chariots, and they don't, or something like that. And you, their counselors think, yes, you can win. Or your counselors say, no way. They're better than we are. And what Jesus is saying is, if you figure out you can't win, then very early in the process, send a delegation asking for peace, because you would lose your entire kingdom. You would be killed 
if you go against another king who is going to beat you. And so the, the idea of counting the cost is what is talked about here. Before we do something, we need to count the cost. Now, when you speak about Christianity, for example, Christianity, people, Jesus is saying, count the cost before you say, I'm all in for God. Count the cost before you turn your life over to Jesus. And for, for somebody today who is a non-believer, who reads this and says, I want to do this. Christianity is the only system and religion that is fully open and transparent. And you can get all the, you can get more information than you want about Christianity, the history of Christianity, the fights within Christianity. You can get Bibles in every translation you want. You can get any information. You can go to San Jose State. When I was, I got my bachelor's at San Jose State, and I took a class called History of Christianity. I took a class called Christianity as a World Religion, and I took a class called Bible as Literature. Three classes that teach the facts about Christianity in a secular state college. There is more information if you want to figure out what's going to be required of you to be a Christian than any other group. There is no secret cabal at the top of Christianity that has all the secret teachings. Okay? Islam has that. You're not going to get anything if you start talking to a Muslim about their religion. It's all secret. You can get the Quran, but it may not be the same Quran that they're doing. You can go to Buddhism. And if you go to India, you will get one version of Buddhism. If you go to China, you get another version of Buddhism. If you go to Japan, you get another version of Buddhism. Each country has morphed Buddhism to, to meet their culture, is one way of looking at it. Hinduism, three and a half million gods. Pick your god. You may worship one god and I worship another. Therefore, it's very personal. Smorgasbord is Hinduism. Christianity is the only religion in the world today where it is 100% open, plain, and transparent. And you can get, as I said, all the information you want. And so if an unsaved person wants to know about Christianity, and I knew one person like this. They met me years ago. And they said they wanted to test the waters, see what Christianity was about. And I said... Right on. I, I said, go to Amazon and type in Christianity, and you'll have three million choices. I said, go to YouTube and type in Christianity, and there's teaching and preaching and Bible reading and all these things. And I said, pick a church and start going to it and see what the Christians are like. And he said, okay. And he tried it for about three months. Then he said it was too much work, and he went with Buddhism. So, the idea of somebody who's unsaved 
I've never heard of anybody who did a full research of Christianity before becoming a believer. For most of us, we become a believer because of a situation in our life, because of a sermon or a reading, or it's always the movement of the Spirit. We become a Christian, and I think for those who are saved, we need to be those who count the cost even after we're saved. I think counting the cost is a daily, monthly, yearly event, depending on how things happen. If you look at your bulletin, it says, I'm able to do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, if you, that's Philippians 4.13. If you read Philippians 1 through 12, Paul is talking about the different situations he's in. And one way that you could read this is, I am able to be in any situation through Christ who gives me strength. It is not a verse that promises your plans will succeed. It's a verse that says whatever God brings you into, you will be able to withstand. And so as you grow in Christ, you're going to see God saying, well, we need to get rid of this and we need to straighten that out and we need to ask for forgiveness for this. And I think all of these are counting the cost. I think as we live more for Christ, we see more that needs to be sacrificed for Christ as we get closer to the cross, as it were, that these are costs that we need to count. And when I've looked at my life, I, I see things happening, you know, beaten up by a homeless guy in July. And that was a cost of being a pastor, of being a follower of Christ, that I needed to see it as that. And as that, I don't blame God. My faith isn't weakened. In fact, it strengthens my faith because I know God is behind it all and doing it all for His purposes and His understanding, usually only. And so it says, it ends this with, uh, so therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. And this is, a, this is a possessions sort of thing. Is that we need to understand that whatever we own, whatever little kingdoms we've built, they do all belong to God, whether we understand that or not. And we are stewards of it. As I was studying this, I thought about... This, the supercomputer that takes phone calls. And what you can do is you can put any number of apps and programs on here to make these phones do anything you want. And so because of this, I've now started the practice of every month. I'm going to pull out my phone and I'm going to look at all the apps. And I'm going to pray over every app. And I'm going to pray, is this good for God? You know, God want me to have this? Does, is this glorifying God? Is this glorifying my flesh? What is this doing, this app on my phone? There's also cost and things that may be involved financially. And I'm willing to put everything on my phone on the chopping block and say, God, do you want this? 
And he says, no, this is useful. You may have this. This, oh, no, no, this one shouldn't be on your phone. It's a time waster. It puts your mind in the wrong perspective. And things like that. And we can look at various things. We can look at things we value in our homes. We can look at the things we own. And one by one, we can hand them over to God and say, thank you for letting me use this, but you can take this whenever you want. And that is a tough thing to truly understand, to truly say to God, take it all if it helps my walk with you. If it gets me off the throne and puts you on the throne, then I'm willing to let go of it. And these are ongoing, counting the cost choices that we need to make, which helps us along the sanctification road. I think the, there's an old booklet that is called My Heart, Christ Home. And Jesus comes to your house, knock, knock on the door. You say, hey, welcome Jesus. Comes in, show him the whole house, and he says, great, what about that closet? And you say, I'm not, no, no, no. There, I gave you the living room, I give you the dining room, I give you the garage, but you're not getting that closet. And that is sometimes, I think, the, 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 you know, the, the person was, uh, he had the idea to write it because he saw people who were giving 99% to Jesus, but I'm going to keep this 1%, giving 90% to Jesus, but I'm going to keep that 10, and we need to figure out if we do have a closet in our heart that we're not letting Jesus in, that I will be a Christian Every moment of every day, except when I play this game on my phone. I will be a Christian every moment of every day until I read this particular book or watch these particular YouTube videos or do this other thing that feeds my flesh and not my spirit. And so counting the cost is not just a oh, that's something that happens once when you accept Christ, or that happens in different cultures other than America. It is something that is related to our walk with him and what Jesus may require from us at any particular time. We finished today by recounting the words of the song we sang, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give, I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this day. I pray that you would speak to our hearts in all the choices we make to see if there is a cost that needs to be paid, to see if there needs to be a choice to serve you better. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and guide us in these choices. And we ask this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 AM. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. 
May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.